Welcome back to the program. Be it ethnicity, race, or sexual orientation, we have an odd human tendency to equate tolerance and integration to mean sameness. The idea of a social, political, and cultural melting pot often seems to be the primary metaphor for accepting difference, as opposed to, well, just accepting difference. Perhaps nowhere has this been more profound lately than for gays and lesbians. Once shunned, now we look to gay marriage, child-rearing, and fashion as a kind of establishment model. In short, human beings love to co-op difference and seek sameness. But what impact does that have on individuals who may be different, whose ideas, values, and creativity and lifestyle seek to be different? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Julie Bendel. Julie is a freelance journalist, broadcaster, and feminist activist. She's the co-founder of the law reform organization Justice for Women, and in 2013, she was named in the top 100 most influential gay and lesbian people in the world. It is my pleasure to welcome her here to talk about her new book, Straight Expectations. What does it mean to be gay today? Julie, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things that you talk about is this odd dynamic that is at play, that it is both the good news and the bad news, that on the one hand, acceptance is a positive thing, tolerance is a positive thing, but it comes with this tendency to expect sameness, to expect a kind of straitjacketing of any kind of difference. Talk about that in a general sense, first of all. Well, in the early days of the Gay Liberation Front in the US and the UK, so we're talking about 1970, maybe even a little earlier in the US, there was a tendency um, from those who had joined this movement, both the men and the women, lesbians and gays, to say that they didn't want to have a seat at the table of normality, of heterosexuality. They wanted to overthrow the system. In other words, completely subvert the status quo rather than become a part of it. So a quest for acceptance was at least 30, 40 years away. Um, and I think that what we've ended up with now, probably for the reason that, you know, we're no longer um, sexual outlaws, a subculture, and there are many people who are coming out as lesbian or gay who are Republican, who are very conservative, um, who are very traditional. And so those voices have kind of drowned out those radical voices that were saying there's something wrong at the root and branch of society here and we can be change makers. Is there not though historical precedent for this kind of a situation that if we look at revolutionary social movements throughout history we see that while they're led by revolutionaries that they're led by those who want radical change that in fact, over time, if they are successful, they do wind up being co-opted in this way. You're absolutely right. For people in any radical social movement, it can be the most incredible privilege to enter the realm of normality. In other words, normal can be radical. If, like lesbians and gay men uh, have experienced, you've been told that you can't look after other people's children, um, because you're all seen as perverts and sexual abusers. If you've been uh, really you know, left out of so many social events because people think that you don't fit in, uh, if you've been discriminated in the workplace because you're seen as dangerous, as weird, whatever, 
then to actually just be accepted along with other citizens can be the most amazing privilege. However, the problem with the lesbian and gay movement of today is not just that we've kind of bought into that and that we've accepted that. It's that we appear in so many ways to be going backwards and to be harming um, the, the, the progress. We seem to be almost throwing ourselves back into an earlier era by accepting, for example, the mantra that we are born gay and that we can't help it, or that marriage is the only way in which we can conduct our relationships. How is this different when you look at it next to other social movements as a, in areas that involve race and ethnicity and the differences there and the way those movements often get co-opted? Well, for example, if you look at the trade union movement, the movement against class oppression, where the workers rise up and say, we refuse to be treated by the upper classes um, in this way, just because they were born with a silver spoon in their mouths, doesn't make them better than us. You know, we are um, entitled to every single privilege that people who are born um, of a, a sort of higher social status, just assume is their birthright. If you look at that, an argument that working class people, for example, in the UK or anywhere, don't use is the apologetic, look, please give us enough food to eat. Please give us a job. Please give us um, decent housing. We can't help but be like this. Some people are just born to be of a lower social class. Similarly, with African-American people, with people of colour, you don't actually hear that biologically deterministic, almost eugenicist point of view, which is, look, you know, we, we really, we can't help it. It's just the way we're programmed to be. What people say is, it doesn't matter how we got to where we are. It doesn't matter what, how we were born what we were born into, people have the right to be treated equally and with dignity. People have the right to be accepted. What the gay movement is doing is asking for tolerance. And we know that you tolerate things that you don't really want, that aren't really positive. You tolerate back pain, for example. <laughs> and so we've stopped asking to be appreciated and respected. And we've started to say, because we were born this way by accident, because we have a rogue gene, we're just asking you to tolerate us and we promise we won't get in your way, we won't pass on um, our gay gene to anyone, we just can't help it. What impact do you see that having on the gay community itself? What, what is the impact of that kind of, of toleration, as you put it? This is why I was saying that I, I think we've gone backwards rather than just gone into a more kind of let's roll with it uh, state of mind. And I say we've gone backwards because the effect of apologising for our existence and putting it down to a biological accident is that we are saying we will no longer campaign for liberation. We will stop right here at the stage where some states in the US have got equal marriage everywhere in the UK, 
now has equal marriage, so lesbians and gay men have the right to marry. We've said because we now have legislation on par with heterosexual people, we need go no further. Now that's really, I think, short-sighted because we may well have legislative equality. And I know that in the US, in some states, there's quite a way to go. But in the UK, for example, we have full legal equality. But we don't have social equality. We are way, way behind on social and cultural equality than we are with legal equality. And I think that that gap is bigger than it's ever been for gays and lesbians. And certainly that's the case in the US. And it's absolutely for sure the case elsewhere in the world. With respect to social equality, though, because it is something that can't be legislated, it can't be done by fiat, it has to be done by individuals, it becomes a much different kind of situation. Yes, it does. And I think that that's what I mean when I say that we've stopped looking for liberation. We no longer critique the systems um, that in the early radical days we kicked against. For example, heterosexuality um, can be as a system bad for women and their children because many women, and not just from the Asian subcontinent and from cultures where women are particularly discriminated against, where women certainly are everywhere in the world, marriage is wholly negative because young women can be forced into marriage, as can adult women. You, you can have child marriage. Marriage can be a site of almost slavery for women. And there's something that Adrian Rich, the great American the late poet, called compulsory heterosexuality. <clears throat> now, lesbians and gay men in the early gay liberation days used to critique heterosexuality as a system and say it was bad for men also. Marriage was bad for people. Indeed, today in the UK, and anyway, we have 50% of all heterosexual marriages ending in divorce. Many of those marriages uh, end because of domestic violence. Um, it's in the main women who who will call for divorce because they say the relationships are unhealthy for them and their children for the simple reason that we still have inequality between women and men. So the idea that lesbians and gay men are now being sold this idea of marriage as this great equaliser when marriage is based on inequality is nonsense. So really, I think we need to get back to the basics and look at what we were calling for in the early days and what we still have to achieve. And there's much yet to achieve. One of the things at the heart of, of straight expectations and the heart of your work is this very extensive survey that you engaged in. Talk a little bit about what some of your findings were as it relates to these things we've been talking about. Well, I decided when I was researching the book that I needed to have the opinions of those other than my interviewees. And I needed to get a sense of what was working or not for lesbians and gay men outside of my political and social circle. Because I've been an out lesbian um, since the, uh, the late 1970s. So I wanted to have a look at the views of a cross-section of the lesbian and gay community in the UK. So I devised a questionnaire 
and it was mainly um, disseminated through the Guardian newspaper uh, site, uh, online site, and other lesbian and gay forum. And I asked whether or not the community believed that we had achieved liberation, what lesbians and gay men thought of marriage, equal marriage, similarly about homophobia and prejudice, and all kinds of questions about how they felt they were accepted or not within straight society. And I also devised a questionnaire in an online survey for heterosexuals, so I could do a bit of a compare and contrast. There weren't too many surprises. One of the questions that I asked from both sets, from straight people and gay people, was do you believe that we were born gay or that sexuality can be a social construction? And the majority do believe, straight and gay, that we are born gay. But there are many lesbians, particularly over the age of 40, who say, no, it's not a biological um, fact. You know, our sexual identity and sexual attraction isn't immutable. And so that was quite interesting because the majority of gay men of all ages do believe that we were born that way. And, of course, for straight people, particularly liberals who would support and defend our rights, I think it's a very comfortable um, way to view our sexuality, that it's something imposed upon us rather than something we might actually like or prefer or even choose. For the rest of the survey, um, one of the quite depressing responses was how many, how the majority, 72%, I think it was, of gays and lesbians had experienced some form of homophobic attack or abuse um, in their lifetime and how that's still very, very much a reality today. To what extent is that fear, is that reaction, is that huge number, as you say, 72%, to what extent is that driving this conflict about sameness and acceptance and tolerance? It's a very good question, and I think that it is a main driver. If we could go back to the 1980s, mid-80s, which was, you know, I'd been out as a lesbian for a few years then, was very much involved in feminism, which in those days was connected totally uh, to lesbian liberation and to other social movements. And two things happened in the UK. One was a piece of legislation brought in by the Thatcher government, our conservative government, named Section 28. And what this did was it forbade teachers, those working in schools, to present homosexuality in a positive way to the students. So it could be spoken about, but only as some kind of negative perversion. And it was to, of course, disable really positive sex education and to stop teachers who at the time were becoming educated about sexual politics from telling students that actually there's nothing wrong with being lesbian or gay and to challenge any bigotry and homophobia that they encountered. So that was a pernicious piece of legislation that many of us um, 
campaign to end and we were successful in the end. But around the same time, of course, we had the HIV epidemic, the pandemic, and young gay men began dying of AIDS. And the government, again, the Thatcher government, put out so-called health warnings, <clears throat> excuse me, awareness-raising campaigns that were based on shock, that were based on anti-gay prejudice of the most extreme, extreme type. And, of course, the general public picked up on AIDS as a gay plague, as God's retribution, and it was the most appalling time for gay men, and it also really did affect lesbians in a secondary way. We were lumped in together in the, um, it, as far as the, the anti-gay general public was concerned. So it was a very bleak, bleak time in the 80s. And there developed, particularly from the gay male community, a very conservative response. It was a, a very scared response in a way, where gay men were saying, look, we don't want to be targeted by the bigots. We don't want to be thrown out of our housing because the landlord thinks that we're going to infect the furniture with HIV. You know, we, we want to be allowed to drink in bars without people thinking that we're going to pass on a disease. You know, we, we want to live our lives. Please allow us to do this and we promise we won't get in your way. We'll just go about our business quietly, tolerate us and we'll behave. And with Section 28, there were many gay men in particular, but some lesbians also, who thought that this meant we were being targeted across the board and we wouldn't be allowed to have our own children. We wouldn't be allowed to look after our nephews and nieces or be seen as ordinary human beings because, of course, the message that was being put out by school teachers to pupils, to students who would then grow up with this attitude was that we were, we were horrendous, we didn't deserve any rights. So I think that in the main, the movement really dissolved at that stage and started to ask for crumbs rather than demand respect and equality. Is there enough energy in the movement today to move on to another plateau? I think there is. I think there's an emerging passion amongst those that have been out as lesbian and gay for a long time. And there are new generations of lesbians and gay men who are finding the strength to come out and be supported by those of us that can, that can certainly be role models or give support and advice. And I think there's a renewed energy because of what's happening around the world. So we see in Russia, we have at the moment the most appalling regime under Putin where lesbians and gay men are being attacked in the street, where every single human right that had been hard fought and won is being removed. We also see laws being repealed in countries such as India, where, you know, anti-gay prejudice was slowly dissolving and now it's come back with a flourish, with the recriminalization uh, of gay encounters. And then, of course, there are some states in the US um, where anti-gay conversion therapy is becoming normalized. I mean, I actually traveled to... Um, 
to Denver, Colorado as an undercover journalist to, to actually have this uh, gay conversion therapy. And it was part of my book research. And so I was in role and I went to an evan- evangelicist who told me that God would love me if only I could stop being gay. Um, and it really brought home to me how normalized this kind of gay hatred is that even in God's name, we're supposed to stop being gay, stop being lesbian, marry, uh, in a, you know, become involved in a heterosexual relationship, despite the fact this is something that we just don't want to do. And all in the name of religion. And of course, we have that in the UK too. We have therapists who will seek to convert lesbians and gay men uh, and make them straight. And so we haven't yet got to a stage where we can even smell what equality looks like. We're not near it yet. So we can't pretend that just because we have equal marriage in some places, and just because we can adopt and, and have our own children, doesn't mean things are all right. Not for many young people, but there is definitely a new energy emerging. And what, in your view, needs to be the direction of that energy and effort? What are the clear-cut goals that should be laid out for, for the next phase of this effort? Well, the direction has to be twofold. I think, first of all, we need to really dispel some of the myths about where we are today. We're not in any way uh, close, as close to equality as some would have it. So we need to look at the fact that, for example, in the UK, one survey showed that more than 90% of uh, young people at schools use the term gay as a pejorative. We need to look at queer bashing and violence towards lesbians and gay men. We need to look at compulsory marriage for many women from traditional communities. And we need to ask the question, why is it that so, there are so few sports stars, actors, uh, people in public roles who are out and proud, particularly lesbians? So that's one thing that we need to do at home right now. The second thing is we need to look to other countries where people are far worse off than we are in the West. For example, Iraq and Iran. Um, you know, some some countries such as Jamaica and other Caribbean islands put people to death for gay encounters, gay relationships, for having gay sex. There are some countries where you can be imprisoned or sentenced to hard labour for being discovered to be gay or lesbian. And of course, there are in the UK and in the US, there are people who are from those countries where there are horrendously homophobic regimes, where they've travelled to us seeking refuge, seeking asylum, and our governments are deporting them back to countries where they face torture, imprisonment, or even death. So we need to join forces with our gay brothers and sisters and our straight allies, and we need to get very, very clear about the fact that there are those who are suffering in our countries and elsewhere. Where are the constituencies outside the gay and lesbian community that the community needs to, to engage in this kind of effort? To be honest with you, Jeff, I think everywhere. I think we must 
support other civil rights movements, other communities under siege, as well as ask for their support and their engagement. And if that means working with religious communities, educating them uh, about real issues to do with lesbians and gays' lives, then great. And I think that we should afford respect to each other. If it means working with cultural groups, groups from countries where they have been raised to think that lesbians and gays are akin to the devil, then we need to educate each other. I don't think we should leave any stone unturned, but certainly we should be linking with progressive social movements and we shouldn't be doing this on our own. So the workers' rights movement, the the black civil rights movement, um, the disability rights movement and every single social movement that has progressive people within it that can understand our plight and vice versa. Is it, in your view, a political issue or a social movement issue? It's both. I think that the political side of this is that we need to make sure that our rights um, and our quest for equality are inscribed within every single policy document that exists about people who are disadvantaged, who are oppressed, who might face discrimination in the workplace, in the housing market, and elsewhere. We need to look at the political systems in our countries that uphold that discrimination. It's not all right that we can that we can enter certain institutions, whether it be the military um, or the police or government, and just keep quiet about our sexuality. We need to have protection in order to encourage people to come out because the more of us that come out, the fewer are in the closet and the fewer in next generations will be in the closet. It's also social because the law is important. Legal rights are important, but you also have to change hearts and minds. And you can't just do that with the law. You have to do both together. So you have to ensure that we get the message out about who we are, why we're here, what we're asking for, and where we fit into the straight world, which is, of course, totally. You know, we can't have two worlds. We can't live in ghettos. So we need to change hearts and minds. But I think that we also need our legal protection and our legal rights to be firmly enshrined. And things can go backwards. You know, laws are not there forever. So we're in a constant battle to ensure that we don't slip back. If you just look at uh, abortion rights for women, you know, they have slipped back in so many countries or states, and we need to constantly be vigilant. Julie Bendel, her book is Straight Expectations. What does it mean to be gay today? It is just out from Guardian Books. Julie, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right.